Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 35 of the Essential X Labs, where uh, we've got us a milestone issue here. We got us the 25th issue of X Men. And, uh, I mean, what could we possibly do to raise the bar on this era of X Men? Um, well, if you were to guess that we'd celebrate this milestone with something stupid, um, well, you would, uh, you'd win the pony, because, uh, oof, we, we've got something here. Um, let's get right into it. This is X-Men number 25, an October 1966 cover date. The story is called The Power and the Pendant, written by Roy Thomas, pencils Warner Roth, inks Dick Ayers, letters Sam Rosen, imitated by Brand Ech, and edits by Stan Lee. Twelve cent cover price, of course. Now we open with our Silver Age spoilery splash page, which pits our four remaining X-Men against a trio being led by the dread El Tigre. And there's a broken pendant in the background, and, uh, well, that's basically the entire story of the issue. We, we could literally stop right there, but we won't. Um, our story opens with the X-Men on their way back from their battle with the Locust, and they're bringing Jean back to Metro College for her classes. Along the way, however, they happen across a burning orphanage. Um, sounds a little bit cliche. I do wonder if it was hit by a bus full of nuns. Anyway, our heroes suit up and head into the flames to start saving some kids. And over the course of the next three pages, that's exactly what they do. Now, the going starts a bit rough, but it facilitates the scene playing out in a way in which all the X-Men get a moment to show their stuff. Angel flies some kids off the roof of the burning building. Iceman crafts an ice ladder instead of an ice slide, but whatever. Gene catches Bobby and a couple of kids when they fall off his rickety and rapidly melting ice ladder. Beast leaps up to the roof to grab the remaining kids, and Cyclops unleashes an optic blast to knock a tree down into the building so Beast can run down it. Just then, the sirens start going off, and the fire department's on their way. At this point, our heroes decide to hightail it out of there. The firemen are advised by the orphanage staff that they were just saved by the Uncanny X-Men, which adds another layer to the whole are-they-heroes-or-menaces debate. Now back in the car, the X-Men are happy that they could be of use, but are still a bit depressed that an orphanage just burnt down. Professor X tells them to worry none, because uh, he happens to know that a new orphanage was already planned to be built right there. Which strikes me as a little convenient. Uh, makes me wonder if maybe there isn't a little bit of insurance fraud at play here. I guess we'll leave that for uh, the Matt Murdochs of the world, and uh, if I find out that Matt ever does try this case, I suppose we'll have to cover it here on the show. Anyway, Warren's Hoopty finally makes it back to Metro College, and Jean hops out. She is immediately met by... Creepy Ted Roberts. Now he offers to carry her bag, which makes Jean feel a bit weak in the knees. She thinks to herself that life among the Homo sapiens might just be okay after all. Professor X, who's almost certainly reading her mind without permission, is probably a bit bummed out. Back in the car, uh, Cyclops laments the fact that Jean seems happy, and also how he can't bring himself to be happy for her happiness. And he's coming closer and closer to quitting the X-Men himself. Professor X, who is almost certainly reading his mind without permission, is probably mentally rolling his eyes at the thought. Also in the car, Warren Worthington vows to bang anything that moves in order to get over losing Jean to that wannabe head-shrinker Ted Roberts. Professor X, who is almost certainly reading his mind without permission, is probably very intrigued by this. Scene shift to Central America. Now, this is where we meet the man known as El Tigre, no relation to Jean Grey, and he is joined by two locals as they search for the hidden pyramid of the Mayan god Kukulcan. 
Ramon and Tulok, Tulak? I don't know. They're the locals, and it's pretty clear that they hate El Tigre, and in fairness to them, he is kind of a dick. Now the trio arrives at the dig site, and El Tigre forces them to start working immediately. You know, rather than sit a spell and catch their breath after the long, arduous hike. And so, they dig for several hours before finding their quarry. And it's like a tomb full of riches. But the only piece that calls out to El Tigre is a shard of ornamental stone. Now he places it in his pocket, and he tells the two to knock off for the night. That night, while El Tigre sleeps, Ramon and Talak decide that they should probably just kill the guy. Fair enough. And so, with machete and rope in hand, they approach his slumbering form. Only he can tell that they're coming, and he uses his newly acquired mental powers to tie them up in their own ropes. He demands their loyalty or else, and so, rather than eat their own machete, they agree to his terms. El Tigre isn't sure exactly what just happened, but he finds that shard of stone on the ground next to him. He feels as though it moved on its own, and so he picks it back up. Suddenly, he finds himself with the ability to read all of the Mayan hieroglyphs on the pyramid, and it's the story of the pendant of Kukul Khan. Now, it was halved, like we saw on the front page here, and he whoever reunites the pieces will be given unlimited power, but also a curse. Well, you had El Tigre at power, so he vows to track down the other half. We shift scenes back to the mansion, and the remaining X-Men do some studying. For what? I couldn't tell you. Remember, they did graduate, like, almost 20 issues ago. Anyway, Scott can't focus, because his mind is still stuck on his forbidden love. Now, he wishes something, anything, might happen to distract him, and just like that, Cerebro lets out a wicked, shrill scream. Professor X hops into his mechanical legs to address the team. Only on his way down the stairs, his legs give out. Now, as he falls, a mechanical tentacle emerges from the wall and grabs him. And I wonder, is this a leftover booby trap from when Magneto took over the school? No. No, it's a very specific failsafe that Xavier put in just in case his mechanical legs ever gave out while he was walking up or down the stairs. Huh, okay. Anyway, Scott carries Xavier over to his wheelchair and they head into Cerebro's bedroom for a sit-rep. What they learn here is... that diddly squat, basically. Cerebro only provides them with a muddled image. Now, Xavier immediately realizes that this might mean that the threat is thus far incomplete, which is a great hot take, isn't it? He can also glean that whatever this incomplete, maybe mutant threat is, it's headed for Manhattan. And so the X-Men are dispatched to the most populous city in the country to try and locate one man. I give him three pages tops. So, let's head to New York City. Angel is flying Natch, and he gets a sinister vibe from a nearby helicopter, and, uh... Any guesses who's in that helicopter? Well, of course, it's El Tigre, Ramon, and the other one. Our baddies have trouble hailing a cab, and in fairness, they look like they just walked off the set of a Clint Eastwood movie. And so, El Tigre uses his mental abilities to free up a hack and get a ride to a nice hotel. Now, outside that hotel, Scott Summers is still on the hunt. He notices the three poncho-wearing fellas entering the place, but doesn't think much of it. Then, he gets bumped by a pedestrian which knocks off his sunglasses and causes him to let loose with the optic blasts. The passerbys immediately know that he's a dirty, stinking mutie, and despite the fact that they don't have time to fetch their pitchforks, they give chase all the same, so fear and hate. Anyway, Scott recovers and heads back to the X-Men's own hotel room. There, his teammates are watching the news, where it's being reported that there was a riot at a nightclub on 39th Street. 
From the photos taken of the riot, they see our trio sitting there enjoying the fracas. Now, all of our heroes claim to have seen these three. And remember, folks, this is Manhattan. There are well over a million people in this borough, even way back in the long ago. By now, Professor X has psychically chimed in. He confirms to the team that these three are, in fact, who they're after. You see, he sequestered himself with Cerebro for a few hours to get a better bead on the threat. And when he attempted to probe El Tigre's mind, it was blocked. Ipso facto, he be the baddie, and he's probably headed to the museum. Now, the X-Men are overjoyed that they finally get to get out of their civvies and back into costumes, citing it's been a while. As in, like, six, maybe seven pages? Anyway, the X-Men, in full costume, burst through the lobby of the hotel. Uh, Kid Cool leaves an entire ice slide in his wake, which, pardon the pun, is really uncool of him. So the X-Men hail a cab and catch a ride to the city museum. Thankfully, the cabbie doesn't ask which one, because I think we might get stuck there for a bit. So let's just get to the museum, huh? The Beast is able to deduce that they're in the right place by the busted lock and forced open door. Inside, our heroes are attacked by... Empty suits of armor. Which, sure, okay. Uh, Beast makes a leap for it and gets tied up by an Argentine bola. And one of said bola balls whacks him on the noggin, giving him the big KO. Iceman crafts an ice spear, which is shattered by a flying sword. A machete, even. Now, Bobby rushes to a flight of stairs and creates an ice slip and slide, and unfortunately for him, he slips and slides right into a wall. Angel deftly dodges some animated mammoths and saber-toothed tigers. Thankfully, there are no nets here, but unfortunately, there is someone wielding a dart gun, and he gets a trank dart right in the back of his neck. Last up is Cyclops, who gets spotted by a night watchman who is under the influence of El Tigre's mental hoodoo. While the guard holds Scott at gunpoint, our big bad makes his way over to the other half of the pendant of Kukul Khan. He smashes the glass and reunites the halves, and we wrap up with El Tigre transformed into Kukul Khan himself. Oi. Um, next episode, I- I'm guessing the second half of this one, but we will uh, burn that bridge when we get to it. Well, gang, um, what do we even say about this one? Um... I've literally got nothing. Um, I'm happy that we are getting to the end of the corridor of crappy villains here. Uh, We've only got one more to go before we get back into some semblance of business as usual. And I mean, this new normal under Roy Thomas has been different. (laughs) It's been different for sure, but uh, definitely not my cup of tea. Uh, We do have one more issue with El Tigre or Kukul Khan or whatever we're going to call him. But after that, we get the Mimic, we get Banshee showing up, so we just gotta grin and bear it for now and uh, hope that we survive the experience. Uh, And I tell you, it feels a little bit like a cop-out, but I I really don't have anything to say about this one. If anybody out there has anything to say about this one, please, please hit me up and let me know, but uh, I won't be holding my breath. Anyway, onwards and upwards to uh, Let's Visit the X-Men. Now, we're going to start with a letter from Roger in Kansas. Now, Roger loves Spider-Man and the X-Men. He's not a fan of the Green Goblin being Harry's father, though, so makes me wonder if this might be Steve Ditko writing in. He doesn't want to see Aunt May killed off, and he wants Peter to share his secret with somebody, you know, that he is Spider-Man. And uh, 
To which I would ask, hey, how about everybody? How about everybody knows who Peter is? That'd be, that'd be really good storytelling, wouldn't it? From here, he starts talking about the actual X-Men here, finally. He loved X-Men number 22. He only wishes that Roy included Ultimo in the Magia Menagerie. And he does not want to see Warren get between Gene and Scott. Stan says, hey, as soon as I remember who Ultimo is, he'll give a better answer, which is a perfect Stan answer. Next, Carlos Pacheco in New York City. Probably not that Carlos Pacheco, because he'd be like four years old right now and also be in Spain. Um, X-Men 22 was the best yet, according to Carlos, to which I say, really? Uh, He wants to know whose idea it was to have Hank mistake that mop-top dude for Vera. Uh, Okay. Uh, He likes the eel better than the unicorn. And I didn't know one could have a preference between two such awful characters, but uh, Carlos likes the eel. Uh, Wants to see Magneto join up with the Juggernaut and the Mimic to fight the X-Men. And he'd like to see Spider-Man, Daredevil, and Hawkeye team up. Which, uh, I don't think that'll happen in an issue of X-Men, but uh, you never know. Uh, He wants Marvel Girl and Cyclops to get married, like right now. He wants to see Iceman and Beast team up with the Human Torch and Thing. He wants to see better Marvel mags in the future. Which, okay. Um, Now Stan chooses to ignore the entire letter, except for that last line. And he says, hey, you and me both. We all want to see better Marvel mags. Next up, Bud in Weissbaden, Germany. Now Bud suggests that the 1960s be known as the Age of Comics. He says that the word Marvels should be used when talking about any and all comics the same way Kleenex is used to say tissue. He also... hmm, He also gives us a poem that would uh, make Bernard the poet swoon. And uh, I'm not a a poet. I'm not not someone who would stand on stage in front of beatniks, but I'll give this my best shot all the same. So saith Bud. When the world's gone wrong, it's the same old song, and your friend has gone fickle. To the newsstand shop with a skip and a hop for mags and not pickles. Marvels, you yell, and you feel so swell, because of two pennies and two nickels. <laughs> Jesus. Um, Stan commands the readers to make Marvel a generic word, and I don't think that came out right. John in California says that the X-Men just keep getting better and better. Now, the upswing started with the Sentinel Saga and continued through the Magneto two-parter. Really? Okay. He wants to see Spider-Man visit with Professor X. He also has a question about the porcupine, because he recalls him vanishing into nothing after ODing on reducing gas. And if that's the case, what gives? Now, Stan says that the reducing gas is only temporary, and says if anybody out there has a better explanation, he'll send them a sugar-free no-prize. Next up, we got Kevin in California, who loved seeing the supervillains from, quote, way back when in X-Men number 22. And uh, way back when must be a most relative term. I mean, these guys weren't even out of print for a year. So he considers the unicorn to be one of his favorite baddies ever. Wow. He'd also like to see the unicorn battle Iron Man again. And Stan says he'll run his unicorn request through Cerebro and see what comes out the other end. George and Anthony in Wisconsin, a twofer here. Now, they call Stan, or I guess Roy, out for his poor Latin. Now, he cites that Beast said Tempest Fugits, which should have just been Tempest Fugit, no S. Stan says that the Beast was just quoting the Latin frivolously. Grammatically incorrect, yes, but just using it as a tagline. And he compares it to someone saying, like, nothing instead of nothing. 
and I'm already getting the indication that Roy does not like being corrected, and uh, I think we're going to be seeing more of that in the letter pages as, uh, as time rolls on here. This is something that Stan would have just ordinarily taken on the chin, but rascally Roy does not like being corrected. Next up, Stuart in Rhode Island. Now, Stuart was burned out on crappy comics after reading brand Ech mags. He opened the good book for inspiration and came across John 3-7. And uh, we got some Bible verses here, which I've actually run through Google, and they are uh, mostly legit. Now, John 3-7 reads, Marvel no, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Then he quotes John 5-20, He will show them greater works than these, that ye may marvel. And like I said, these are... Legit scripture, uh, but they are worded a little bit differently depending on where you look, but the intent is, uh, you know, the same, I suppose. So anyway, Stuart was guided to Marvel Comics from the Bible. Stan is dubious about this and thinks Stu might be pulling his leg and uh, decides he'll play along anyway. Now, he still wonders how Stu feels about the Marvel books he has read, though, because he doesn't really say. Those were the letters. Let's get into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as sensational secrets and incredible inside information guilelessly guaranteed to avail you not. First item. Stan wants to thank the Merry Marvelites for supporting their mags and making this the Marvel Age of Comics. And he says that they couldn't have done it without you. Item. Remember those 25-cent annuals or specials? Well, Stan's still talking about them, too, so will somebody out there please buy them? Item. Whatever you do, do not miss Strange Tales number 150, because Doctor Strange gets equal billing with Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you can just check out the Ginchy new masthead on the book. It's a modern take on Strange Tales. Item. Don Heck will begin inking his own work with Avengers number 22, so uh, I guess if you're a Don Heck fan, this is a good thing. If you think Don Heck is boring, this is, uh, well, twice as boring. Item. Gene Colan takes over for John Romita on Daredevil. And Stan calls both fellas the fastest riding, rising stars in the Marvel firmament. So you see, we're not missing Steve Ditko one bit. From here, it's the wrap-up, and it's big, big news here. The Marvel heroes are coming to your TV screens five nights a week for a half hour each. And indeed, on the very next page, we get an ad all about it. Complete with an incomplete list of stations where you can find these shows here. We got St. Louis, Buffalo, Saginaw, Syracuse, New York City, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Detroit, Portland, Maine, Rochester, Boston, Baltimore, Charleston, Los Angeles, Albany, Salt Lake City, Memphis, Washington, D.C., New Orleans, Chicago, and Providence. And as we continue our way through, we will be adding stations to that. So, uh, woohoo, I'm, I'm all at Twitter, and I'm sure you are as well. Speaking of which, let's get into the mighty... Marvel Checklist. Books on sale this month. We're going to start with Fantastic Four number 56, which this is like the fifth time I'm trying to record this sentence. More Inhumans and Human Torch action. Humans and Human Torch. In- it's, it's a toughie. It's a toughie. Just rest assured we're going to see very boring people and Johnny Storm. Spider-Man number 42. J. Jonah Jameson's son transformed. Also, face it, Tiger, we're about to see what Mary Jane Watson looks like. Avengers number 33, the Avengers stomp out the serpents. Daredevil number 21 versus the Uncanny Owl. Thor 133 is still in the Black Galaxy. Strange Tales 150, Hydra is already back. And a new female menace for the Doctor of Strange. And, of course, as we mentioned, a ginchy new masthead. Tales of Suspense 83, Iron Man victorious, kinda. And Cap still battles the Adaptoid. 
Tales to Astonish number 85, Death Comes to Submariner Town, and Hulk shows up in both strips this issue. Sergeant Fury number 35 has the Howlers vs. the Nazis in Berlin. Marvel Collector's Item Classics number 5, reprints aplenty. Marvel Tales number 5, same here. Fantasy Masterpieces number 5, yup, more reprints, including the Golden Age cap. We get the Fantastic Four Special number 4, which features the original Human Torch versus Johnny Storm. And reprints. And the Spider-Man Special number 3 has Spider-Man vs. the Avengers, Spider-Man vs. the Hulk, plus, you guessed it, reprints. Finally, we have the Merry Marvel Marching Society with uh, 26 new members, including Robert Kennedy. And uh, we will assume that it's that Robert Kennedy, because, of course, it would have to be. It would have to be. But those are the bullpens, those are the letters, that is our issue, which only leaves us with our own mailbag and shoutouts. Let's hop into the mailbag first. We got a letter from Billy D. Now he says, hey Chris, wow, that letters page was a doozy. I think some of these people probably ended up in mental facilities. And also, Swank Hotel sounds like something right out of a 70s skin flick. Not that I'd know anything about that. Keep up the slog, as things will get better on this title. Eventually. Well, thank you so much for slogging along with me, Billy, because, uh, yeah, this is a toughie to find things to really sink our teeth into and talk about on the book right now. This is kind of like a uh, best-of-times, worst-of-times sort of situation, because writing the synopsis for this is a blast, because it's just so insane, and it's so silly. But then I get to the point where I have to, like, try to analyze or try to... I don't know, make this show worth your time <laughs> rather than just going through a synopsis and saying, and then this happened, and then this happened. I get to that point and it's like, what can I even say? It's gotten to the point where the book is so repetitive that even my pointing out the repetition is getting repetitive. It's like a meme on top of a meme on top of a meme. So, yes, we are slogging, and I truly appreciate everyone who is slogging along with me here. I think we're probably at like the creative nader. Of the book, at least for this era I think we're going to be climbing back out of this pit uh, Pretty soon, at least I mean, it's been like 20 years since I read these things But I seem to remember it getting better (laughs) As we get into the 30s I could be completely wrong I could be misremembering Uh, Whatever the case is We will uh, endeavor to face it together So thanks again for writing in Now speaking of thank yous Let's head to our shout-out department here Uh Folks on Twitter and Facebook who took the time to hit the like, hit the retweet, hit the little heart, whatever the case may be here. I want to thank everyone who did that. Starting on Twitter with our friends Ed Moore, The Bat Pod, Walt Nealon, Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, Jason Colby, The Longbox Crusade, Joe Crawford, David Schultz, and Jeremiah. Then over on Facebook, Jesse DeYoung, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Jeremiah, Billy D, and Walt Neeland. Thank you all so much for helping to uh, signal boost this little program. Now that's going to do it for us today. Uh, I think last episode I forgot the, uh, you know, the contact me information. Not that it really matters all that much, but I want to make sure I get it in here today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason at all, you could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sxmen. And, of course, the full audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your applications and devices and places that bring you sound. 
Now with that out of the way, I'll let you all get on with your day. Look at me, Bernard the Poet over here. I want to thank you so much for sharing your time with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.